Thank you, Barbie. We finished last week in John chapter five, chapter four, uh, no, chapter five, um, with Jesus making this announcement by his, uh, not just by his uh, healing, but by his words, that indeed he is the judge and the creator of all, and what we can expect as believers from his judgment and from his recreation. And we left off just before these verses here. And it says here that for just as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he's given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So the only way, the only thing that gives Jesus the right to judge us is number one, it was given to him by the Father. And number two, he is the Son of humanity. He's the son of God, but he's also the son of man. Only someone who knows how we feel, only someone who knows what it's like to be human is allowed to judge us. I think that's good news today. Very, very good news is that he decided not just to be the son of God, but he also equally is the son of man. So he continues to debate with the people that are debating with because there are people who do not like what he has done and what he has said. They do not like him acting in this authority because they don't believe that he has it. So I've always wondered, I, I've, uh, depending on, on uh, when we have uh, studied this, I always wonder what to call these people. I call, I've called them the church of the day. I've called them the believers of the day, which they are. I think after today, I'm gonna call them the Bible believers. They're the ones that believe in the Bible. Do we believe in the Bible here? Are we a Bible-believing people? Yes, we are. I just want you to redefine that when we're done today. Is that Okay. Because he's speaking to Bible believers. It is they who are telling him that he doesn't have the authority and they're coming at it from a standpoint is because they believe what? They believe the Bible. They're coming at the word with the word, telling him he can't be the word. And this is the very first of, of these debates that Jesus will have with these Bible believers. In fact, from now until all the way through chapter 10, he's going to be having this debate with these Bible believers. I know even with your masks on, I could see your eyes, you're a little uncomfortable, but just hang with me here, okay? Just hang with me here, my fellow Bible believers, all right? Okay. So he has to start with them when you are debating with a Bible believer, where do you have to begin? With yourself. No. In fact, the Bible says don't begin with yourself. You have to begin with the Bible, right? Because they claim that the Bible is their authority. So that's where he's going to begin. Didn't mean to jump on you, Faye, but you, you are right. You begin with our belief in ourself. And so if somebody wants to come to us as Bible believers, they'd better begin with what? They better begin with the Bible because that's our authority, amen? Okay, that's what I meant. That's what I meant here. 
So Jesus begins the debate this way. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not what? Is not true. Now, I said that he was going to begin with the Bible. Is he beginning with the Bible? Does those verses right there begin with the Bible? Is he talking about biblical authority? Well, in a way, yes. He says, I don't speak of my own. I don't testify of my own. In other words, he does not expect anybody to believe him based on his own testimony. So is this a Bible study argument? Well, the Bible does say, the Bible of his day, in Numbers, when talking about who you can put to death and who you can't, and I know that this is a huge leap, but hang in there with me. If anyone kills another, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses, but no one shall be put to death on the testimony of what? Of a single witness, one witness. Nobody will be put to death on that. And then Deuteronomy says, a single witness shall not suffice to convict a person of any crime or wrongdoing in connection with any offense that may be committed. Only on the evidence of what? Two or three witnesses shall a charge be sustained. See, the rabbis looked at this from an argument, and and we will see this argument with Jesus. You see it all the time, this rabbinic argument of the argument from the least to the greatest, okay? It has a Hebrew uh, name, and I'm always forgetting it, and I forgot to look it up before I come up here, but it's it's this rabbinic way of arguing, of arguing the least to the greatest. So if God requires, before you can put somebody to death for a capital crime, in other words, if God requires that you have to have more than one witness for testifying, if he, if, if he requires that you have to have two or three witnesses to convict anybody of a crime, the rabbis would argue, if he's that picky about death, then certainly he feels the same about life. Amen? And there isn't anything more life-giving then when you begin a debate as to who has come from God or not, especially if he's claiming to be the son of God. Because Jesus just said, I do the same work as my father on the Sabbath. And what is that work? We learned the work, what was the work last week? Creation, right? Creation, sustaining life, giving life. Jesus claimed that he can do that work on the Sabbath because the father has given him the authority to do so. But he says here, scripture clearly says, if I can't put somebody to death on one witness, then I certainly can't give life on one witness. I don't expect you to believe me just because I tell you. So he is beginning with scripture. He's beginning with them. You with me? Okay. So he has to have another witness in order for them to be able to believe. He has to have someone else testifying to what he just claimed as to him being from God or not. So we're told in verse 32, he says, there is another. He goes, I've got witnesses. There is another who testifies on my behalf and I know that his testimony of me or to me is true. Jesus is ready to add up the witnesses. I'm ready to give you witnesses. You're right, the Bible says that this should be more than one witness to this. And he says, I've got him. 
I've got him. I'm ready to do it. And, 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 and so he, he says, he's ready to add up, add them up. Where, their question to him is, where do you find your authority here? What, what gives, a, gives you the right to be doing this or saying this? We need to see your witnesses. So he begins with a human one. Okay? He begins with a human one. He says, you sent messengers to John. Is he talking about the writer of the gospel? No. He's talking about John the Baptist, isn't he? You sent messengers to John the Baptist, and he testified to what? He testified the truth. By the way, what was John's testimony? That there was one coming. Right? The Baptist testimony was he is here to make way for the who? For the Lord. And Jesus says, and his testimony was true. What's interesting, though, is that he starts with a human uh, testifier, if you will. He begins with a human testimony, and then he says, not that I accept what? Not that I accept such human testimony, but I say these things to you, the Bible believer, because you're looking for the Bible telling you that that I need another witness. He says, I don't accept such human testimony, but I say these things so that you might be what? So that you might be saved. John the Baptist testified of the truth. They even sent messengers to check him out, he said. Interesting that he uses John because in Matthew, there's this, there's this story where they finally have had it in Matthew 21. The, the, the Bible believers have finally had it with this guy and they say, just say, tell us plainly where you get this authority. Where is it you get it from? And remember, Jesus comes back at them as a good rabbi would with another question. He says, all right, I'll tell you where I get it if you tell me something, right? You answer my question, I'll answer yours. Do we remember what his question was? The baptism of John, in other words, John's baptism, what he came to do, what he did. The baptism from John, was it of heaven or of human origin? We're right there in the middle of that argument about testimonies, right? Are human testimonies valid? Or only heavenly testimonies valid? And they even have have to discuss it, okay? They argued with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why didn't you what? Then why didn't you believe him? And if we say of human origin, we then should fear the crowd for all, how many? All regard John as a what? As a prophet, he calls out their hypocrisy, doesn't he? He goes, you guys want human witnesses all day long until you don't agree with them. You guys want human witnesses as to what is of God and who and and what isn't. You guys want witnesses as to what is of scripture and what isn't until the time that you don't believe. You even sent messengers to John to figure him out. You all agreed with him. You all think he's a prophet, yet you don't what? You don't believe his testimony. Because what was John's testimony? It was about who? It was about Jesus. He calls him out, doesn't he? I love the fact, too, that he says that I don't accept such human testimony. Does the creator need testimony from the creatures that he is the creator? No, especially not fallen creatures. (laughs) Because fallen creatures have a habit of not being able to give testimony to their creator. Right? He says, I don't have to. I don't have to. But it's beautiful, he says, but I do this for you. Wow. 
I know how much it means to you guys. I know how much it means to you to be able to jibe my testimony, to be able to synchronize my testimony with your understanding of the scriptures. I'll play that game with you because I love you. I want you to be saved. Jesus meets us where we are. Even if we're telling him that he's not Jesus. Even if we're telling him that he's not God. He's still willing to walk with us. So Jesus says it doesn't matter anyway, this argument about human witnesses, because I have another. Okay, he has another. He says, but I have a testimony greater than who? Greater than John's. The works that the Father has given me to complete, the very works that I'm doing testify on my behalf that the Father has sent me. He just went from a human testimony to who? God testifies himself. And they may not know it or not, but the Bible believers are are asking for that very testimony, and Jesus is giving it to them. But is he giving it to them in in his words? No. It's the works, he says, that I do on my Father's behalf. Those works testify of me. Now, I said said before that, that, that to believe in him based on signs is a partial faith. That's not what he's talking about. He says, those actually show you where my testimony is coming from. Now, now you have to be able to get involved with me. You and I now have to walk and talk for a while, and maybe eventually your faith will deepen. It will. I promise you, he says, it will. And you won't have to just believe in me based on signs of power. But he said, right now I'm telling you that it's his works that testify me. The Father himself is Jesus' witness. It's the works he's able to do, which is interesting to ponder, right? It's very interesting because the very first Bible believer that Jesus is confronted with says that, that uh, he recognized the signs, right? He already recognizes the signs and the power. He recognizes that he comes from the Father. Remember, Nicodemus told him that, Right? You must have come from heaven because nobody can do the things that you do. Right? He already recognizes that. But notice what Jesus said about that versus a saving faith. He told the guy that recognized that, and he's telling these other Bible believers, if you could recognize my power based on on the signs, you'll still never, ever touch the kingdom of heaven. Unless what? Remember what he told Nicodemus? Unless you be what? Born again. So something else needs to happen. They need to be born again. They need to not just recognize the signs. In other words, they need to go a little bit beyond their Bible belief. Because their Bible tells them, their Bible gives them information for the signs to look for. Jesus said, that's great, but that'll only take you so far. They're the best Bible students and they're missing the power of God right in front of them because they won't go beyond that. And he tells the Bible believers, you have to be what? Born again. Which is funny because us Bible believers already believe we're born again, right? Why? Because the Bible told us to. But he's telling the Bible believers, "Ah, not so much. Not so much. We'll get there. Hanging with me here. We'll get there. They need a brand new approach to their spirituality. They need a brand new approach. They need to do something completely different. Repent 
and be baptized. That word repent, okay? It doesn't mean just all of a sudden becoming sorry for who you are or sorry for sin. It means literally to turn around. Turn around, go in the opposite direction. Change your mind. Change your mind, let God change your heart, especially when it comes to your view of the scriptures, especially when it comes to being a Bible believer, right? A Bible believer. And the Father who sent me has testified on my behalf. You've never heard his voice or what? Or seen his form. Wait a minute, wait a minute. We have heard his voice. Isn't that their argument? Where did they hear it? In the Torah. It's funny that they're not arguing that now, though, are they? Actually, they are. It's just that Jesus is on a roll and they haven't been able to refute him yet. You can argue, you can come back and say, no, I've heard your voice. Jesus says, no, you haven't. You haven't heard his voice and you have not seen his form. You're listening to somebody who claims to have seen his form and heard his voice. They're listening to who? They're listening to Moses, aren't they? Which is, by the way, Moses was the only one that volunteered to witness his form and hear his voice. The rest of Israel said, no way, no how. You go do it. So Jesus is calling them on it, isn't he? He's calling them on 4,000 years of claiming to be believers. And he's saying, you don't even, you, you haven't heard his voice and you have not seen his form until now. And you do not have his word abiding in you. Oh man, those are fighting words to a Pharisee. Those are fighting words to a Bible believer. Let me ask you this. Would you tolerate anybody coming up here and telling you that you do not have the word of God in you? What if our Sunday pastor stood up here and said that to you? Fighting words, right? By the way, I know him very well. He's a very dear friend. He would never say that to you. But the mere fact to even think about somebody telling us that I am not a Bible believer, right? I saw y'all do it too. All right, come on. You don't have your word, you don't have his word abiding in you. How do we know? How do we know? Well, to start with, they don't believe who? They don't believe him. They don't believe Jesus because they think they got something better. They think that they have something better. And here's the key verse for all of us Bible believers right here. The key verse, okay? You search the what? You search the scriptures. How many here have done that this week? We've all searched the scriptures this week, haven't we? So who's Jesus talking to? He's talking to us. He's talking to Bible what? Bible believers. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that testify on my behalf. It is they that tell you about me. Those scriptures tell you about me. But they've already said, no, we've got something better. The Bible believer always tells Jesus, I've got something better. And you know what it is? It's my Bible study. That's what's better. They're experts in the law. But their law is where? It's on paper. It's on paper. It's on tablets. In their day, it's on parchment. 
It's all written down. The written word, it's right here. You search the scriptures, you read, you study. By the way, is there anything wrong with reading and studying? No. See, we have to be careful because just because I say this doesn't mean that there is an opposite. This is not an either or situation. Like I told you before, after today, I just want you to change your definition of being a Bible believer, that's all. I still want us to be Bible believers. But if we're not careful, we can believe ourselves right out of the kingdom. We can believe ourselves into being lost, although we believe we're what? You think that in them you find eternal life, but it's they that testify of me, he says. It's they that testify of me. Now, as we studied the Bible, does, it, does the words that you read that you've studied this week, do they testify of Jesus? Not a trick question. Do they or don't they? Sure they do, right? Sure they do. We find Jesus first where? In the Bible, we find him in here. See, but they think that this expertise in being a Bible student is, 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 is their eternal life. This is, they figured it out. Okay, do that does the words, do the words contain eternal life? Yes, but how? Do they testify on Jesus' behalf? Yes, but how? Let me ask you this. Is Jesus in the words? No. The word is in him. You with me? Jesus isn't in the words. There's a description. They call him by name, right? But it's the word that is in him. The word became flesh and walked among us. Jesus removes the words from the page and he puts them where? In his flesh, in his heart. He walks them. He talks them. That's who he is. He is the living embodiment of the word. The word was meant to be alive. It wasn't meant to be dead. Paul will tell you the word on the tablet is what? It's dead. It can't give life. But take the word and incarnate it into God himself, and now you've got life-giving power. Amen? Amen? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and nothing came into being from the Word. You with me? So the words, he isn't in the words, they are in him. The Word has to be removed from the page sometime. Sometime in the process of us being born again, the word has to be removed from the page because of what we can do with it. See, their problem is that this is what they don't believe. They're not gonna give themselves over to somebody who claims to be God because we don't see it, because we don't see you in them. And so that's their problem, isn't it? Yet you refuse to come to me. You refuse to come to me. That's what's interesting. Jesus invites us to him and we continue to relate to him through the word. And that's what'll happen. Ask anybody in prayer meeting. We'll see this debate, uh, I guess, de-evolutionize. 
They'll back off farther and farther from Jesus. They will make a chasm between them and Jesus and they'll use the Bible to do it. And there is nothing more tragic as we watch this play out. There's nothing more tragic to see somebody tell Jesus that he can't be who he claims to be because his word says that he isn't. Can you imagine the Bible coming between a believer and God? Between, not interceding, but being an obstacle. Isn't that what they, that, isn't that what their problem is? Isn't this the Bible believer's problem? Yet you refuse to come to me for life. They won't come to him. They'll acknowledge that the Father gives life. They'll acknowledge that the Father can continue to do these good works on the Sabbath, but they will not attribute that glory and that power to Jesus even though he works signs that shows that he can. They won't come to him because he just doesn't have it. They don't see him in the scriptures. And to their credit, they don't see him in the scriptures because he's not there. He's not on the page. Those words on the page are in him. And they're walking around in power. That's why they don't see him in the scriptures. So he tells him again, what? I don't accept what? I don't accept glory from human beings. He doesn't need to. The creature, uh, Jeremiah says, does, does, does the pot tell the potter what to do? No. But I know that you do not have the what? The love of God in you. Look, he says, I don't accept your glory because the Father has given it to me. The Father has given it to me. I don't need your testimony. The Father has given it to me. And then Jesus tells them how he knows that the word does not abide in them. Why he tells the Bible believers that they're not really believers. Why he's able to say that they're not really believers. They do not have the the word of God in them because, he says, I can see you do not have the what? You do not have the love of God in you. Now you find the very heart of the dichotomy Jesus is spanning here, okay? Trying to get them to recognize. You can have a knowledge of the word. You can have a knowledge of God. You can know something about him. You can know everything the Bible tells you about him. But it will not give you what? It won't give you love. Love doesn't exist on the page. Love exists where? In the heart, in the flesh. You don't have it, he says. I've come in my father's what? I've come in my father's name. And you don't accept me. If another comes in his own name, you'll accept him. The very people that are demanding another testimony about Jesus will accept another human testimony about somebody else without even another human testimony. You'll accept him, okay? You won't accept me, but another comes in his own name, you'll accept him. How can you believe when you accept glory from one another and you don't seek the glory that comes from the one who alone is God? See, we're satisfied with relating to God on the pages. As a matter of fact, we, we will accept testimony from somebody as long as they can prove that they're what? That they're Bible believers, right? I've been, given, I've been given authority to be able to preach, <laughs> and sometimes those who have given me authority regret doing so. 
but only because I claim to know what? That's not why you should be giving me authority to preach. Because anybody can have Bible knowledge. As a matter of fact, a lot of you do. A lot of you have more knowledge than I do. You should be preaching. I don't stand here because I know the Bible. Hopefully, I stand here because I know Jesus. We don't witness to people because we know the Bible. We witness to people because we know the one that the Bible has taken off the page, put in his heart and his flesh, and is walking and talking among them. How can you believe? See, we're satisfied. We give people authority if they claim to be believers, if it seems that they are believers, if, 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 they, if they seem to know the what, the truth. We give those people all kinds of leeway. If you know the truth, you've, 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 you've got some authority within the church, especially in our church, because we're hung, that's what we're hung up on. We're the only ones that know what? The truth. And if we seem to know the truth, we will give anybody what? Authority and acceptance. Expertise is what gets them accepted, is what he's telling these Bible believers, these Bible students. We'll get a furthering of the argument when we get to chapter seven. But in chapter seven, the, the, the Pharisees and the chief priests and the leaders, they actually make a move. They tell the temple police to go arrest him. Okay, they're gonna make their move now, okay? They tell the temple police to go arrest him. The temple police come back empty-handed. And what are the words to them? Why didn't you arrest him? He's just there preaching. He's just there preaching. Why didn't you arrest him? What did the temple police say? No one has ever, ever spoken like this. No one has these words. I've never heard these words before. But the, by the way, those are Bible believers saying that. And I want you to see their answer. The Pharisees answer back. Surely you've not been what? Surely you've not been deceived, have you? Has any one of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd, which does not what? Does not know the law. This crowd who is not Bible believing, they are what? They are accursed. Their argument for not believing in him is that we don't believe in him. We're Bible believers and we don't believe in him. based on their authority, their interpretation, their acceptance from other Pharisees as authorities. They think they have a greater teacher. By the way, who is their teacher again? Moses. Moses is their teacher. They claim to have only one teacher, Moses. The Torah, they, they know the law, they know the Torah, they know the truth. They believe in the Bible so much, they believe that it's Moses that actually taught them. I am Moses' student, they say. Jesus then, before they begin to make that argument, Jesus jumps on them first, doesn't he? Don't think that I accuse you. Who accuses you? Moses accuses you. Okay? Moses accuses you. On whom you've set your what? Whom you've set your hope. Was Moses a great man? Sure he was. Sure he was. But what set him apart from all of Israel 
was that he's the one that decided to step into this authority that God gave him. He's the only one that stepped up and said, you know what, I I think walking and talking with you uh, right now looks horrifying, but I think it's gonna be pretty cool. He's the one man in all of Israel's history that says, I'm going up the mountain. This face-to-face relationship he speaks of, I'm gonna give it a shot. The rest of Israel says, ah, that's good enough for us. So we put our hope then in who? In Moses. We put our hope in the one who claims to know. And now that God has shown up in their lives, since they don't believe that he looks like Moses, they won't accept him. By the way, Jesus' argument is, I do look like Moses. I look exactly like Moses. In fact, I look more like Moses than you think Moses looks like. Because that's what he says here, doesn't he? If you believed Moses, you'd believe who? You'd believe me. I know exactly what Moses looks like. Because Jesus is Moses incarnate, isn't he? And when I say Moses, I'm talking about his belief. I'm talking about what he wrote down. I'm talking about what he said about himself. I'm talking about what Moses said about the Messiah. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about who? He wrote about me. But if you do not believe what he wrote, how will you believe what I say? He's challenging their what? He's challenging their Bible belief, isn't he? Now, did Moses write about Jesus? Specifically? Sure he did. There's at least one verse where he told Israel in Deuteronomy that God will raise up a prophet like him. We've always made that a messianic prophecy. That's the one time where he addresses him directly. A clear prophecy telling Israel that God will raise another prophet, a Messiah-like figure, if you will. Like me, not me, but like me, right? But you have to remember that what Jesus and Moses is saying is that the law himself testifies of him. Do you find Jesus in every bit of the law? <laughs> See, but you just took it off the page, Vicki. If you leave it on the page, what do you find? It got me, it, was, it got me, I was here this week in Deuteronomy, that's, that's where my devotion is, okay? And there's a section as to who you will give loans to or what you will accept for security of a loan. Now, this is, these are loans to Israelites, loans to your brothers and sisters, okay? Somebody, somebody uh, uh, gets in trouble, somebody gets on the rocks, and, and, and what are they allowed to do? What does God say you're allowed to do? You're allowed to to loan them, right? You're allowed to loan them money. So just like anyone else, uh, you ask for collateral for the loan, right? That's what the law says. And this this first one begins with somebody who says, no one shall take a mill or an upper millstone in pledge, for that would be taking a what? That would be taking a life. What's a millstone or an upper mill? what they use to grind flour, or it actually could be also what they use to grind olives into olive oil. They make a living doing this. That's their food. If you take their millstone, what are you doing? You're taking their life, right? You're taking their life. So keep that in mind, right? Keep that in mind. They said, go ahead and take collateral, but just don't take what? The law says don't take their life. 
okay? Do not take their life. Jump down to verse 10 in the same chapter, and it says, when you make your neighbor a loan of how much? Any kind, okay? Any kind, you shall not go into the house to take the pledge. When you make your neighbor a loan, you wait outside while the person to whom you're making the loan brings the pledge out to you. Why? They know what they can afford, right? By the way, when you ask for a loan from a bank, do they allow you to pick the collateral? <laughs> no, they come into your house, don't they? They come into your garage. As a matter of fact, your house and your car might be the collateral. Can everybody afford that? No. So he says, let the person you're loaning the money to come up with the collateral. Isn't that beautiful? Don't go in. They'll bring it out to you. And then it wakes its way down all the way to here. These are all people that have collateral. But what about the person who's so poor that they don't? If the person is poor, you shall not what? Sleep in the garment. The one thing that they have to give is their, is their cloak. It's their garment. Now the law says it's okay to take it, but don't what? Don't sleep in it. Give the pledge back by what? By sunset so that your neighbor may sleep in the cloak and bless you. And it will be to your credit before the Lord your God. So go all the way back. Start back with don't take their means of making a living. Start with those kinds of people. These are people that you loan to who've just hit hard times. They still can make a living if you give them a what? If you give them a chance, if you give them an opportunity, they still can make a living. I was reading, somebody wrote under here, he says, man, that is smart, that is absolutely smart because you as a creditor, you've got no reason to take the millstone because then they won't be able to pay you back, right? And I thought, wow, that is so smart. If you just read the law, if you just keep it on paper, that sounds pretty intelligent. That sounds pretty smart. See, but I don't believe just in the Bible. I believe in Jesus. And Jesus slips in here and says what? No. Yeah, it's true. They won't be able to pay you back. But that guy's worth more than his debt to you. I want you to not take his millstone because you love him. I want you to not take his millstone as a pledge, because you love him. He is more than your debtor. You are more than his creditor. In other words, the poverty should move the lender. The poverty should move us. They're the ones that matter. Let them pick the collateral. Their poverty should allow us to, to do that. We should be moved and give that to people. We should be allowed to let them do that. If they're so poor that all they have is their cloak, you have to give it back when? Do they have the right to take the cloak until they pay it back? That's what collateral is, right? But he says, don't, don't. Every day, you've got to take it back to them so they can be warm when they what? Let me ask you this. If you had to go back to the person that you loan to every day and witness them where they are and tuck them in every night, do you think maybe your heart might be moved to do something else than just allow them to pay back the loan? It would if we take the law off the paper and we let it walk and live and breathe in Jesus Christ. Maybe just maybe 
we just forgive the loan altogether. Maybe just maybe we try to do something for them that they never ever have to take out a loan again. Because the law only concerns itself, it only goes as far to concern itself with the one who's in debt. But love takes the lender into consideration too. Love wants the lender's heart changed. See, the poor don't need their heart changed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they what? They'll inherit the kingdom. Because a poor person knows what it's like to hold out an empty hand, right? But the law isn't kind to the, to the, uh, to, to the one needing, because he already knows what it's like to hold out an empty hand. The law wants to change the lender's heart. Forgive their loan. Their poverty should move you beyond what the letter of the law says you are supposed to do. See, that's how we're supposed to be reading the scriptures. Jesus sent me back to the scriptures. He sent me back to my Bible belief and said, Greg, find me there. I'm right there. Find me there. What would I do? What am I telling you to do? What do you move to do? It's removed all fear from my Bible study because I realize I don't have to fear anybody who truly loves me. I only have to fear who he's telling me to love. (laughs) See, this all began because Jesus does something on a particular day that they don't think he should be doing, right? First of all, they told, he, he healed on the Sabbath. They, they considered that work. You could wait, all right, you could wait. And if you think that's ridiculous, if you think that that's ridiculous that, that, um, that they would wait till sundown in order to be able to do that, then you weren't baptized in the church that I was baptized into because that's what I was asked for my baptism. When it came to the Sabbath, the first thing I was asked was, do you work on the Sabbath? And I was working uh, at, at a hospital. I worked in neuroradiology. I said, yes. And then I was asked if it was a regular shift. And I said, no, it's only when I was on call. And then I was told, oh, good, it's an emergency. That's okay. So I'm in the clear. John 5, this guy's been laying there for 38 years. John 9 This man is born blind. Luke 6, this man's had a withered hand for, he's had it so long that people think it's a permanent defect and they won't allow him into the synagogue. Luke 13 is a woman who's crippled and bent over. Luke 14 is a man who has dropsy. That's a very, very interesting word. He looks watery. What it is is the Greek word says he's accumulated fluids. In other words, he is inflamed. He's swollen up. He has a watery look about himself. I'm here to tell you, those are all chronic conditions. None of them are emergencies. You with me? None of them are emergencies. We've played these games. Do you work on the Sabbath? Yes. Is it an emergency? Yes. Okay, you're good. Is it not an emergency? Well, you're going to need to do something about that. 
All of these people that I just named, they only have only one thing in common. They're all suffering. And the Son of Man will not let them suffer until sundown. I'm gonna do it now. In other words, the Son of Man looks at the patient and he loves them. Not the standard of the law, he loves them. My first church, we had this, uh, this wonderful lady, <clears throat> single mom. I don't know how she joined. She was already there when I got there. She was never uh, baptized. She just came. She uh, attended a revelation seminar somewhere down the line, and she kind of liked my, uh, my uh, conservative congregation in this, in this extremely secular place called Humboldt County. And she came, and she was faithful. She came every Sabbath. There was something about her, though, that <laughs> life never seemed to give her a break. You ever met somebody like that? His life never seemed to give her a break. Now, some would say, some might say that these were, uh, that these non-breaks were, were caused, that she was getting what she would deserve, and, and she would probably tell you, yes, okay, she's made mistakes, all right? She, but, but also, I know life seemed to have something in particular for her. Every day, she woke up to a curveball. She never, you know... And I remember one Sabbath, she came to church, and uh, we had potluck every Sabbath, and, and it was one of those great Sabbaths. She came to church, we enjoyed it, uh, uh, everything was good, and, and, then, and then about a half hour after I got home, my phone rings. And what happened was, was that she misunderstood when she was supposed to move out of her house. She thought it was going to be the following week, and when she got home at, at, at two o'clock on Sabbath afternoon, the owners of the house were standing there demanding that she get out now. So she didn't know what to do, so she called me. And she had this question for me. She said, doesn't this fall under the definition of an ox in the ditch? And at the time, I thought, well, sure it does. Yeah, absolutely. Except that I didn't have a vehicle that I could help her too much with. I had a van. I could take the seats out of my van, but there was no way I was going to get her couch in there. Probably no way I was going to get her washing machine in there. You know what I'm saying? So I had to call somebody. I had to call my head deacon. Okay, my head deacon was the only one that had a truck. So I called him, and guess what he said? Of course. <laughs> I'll be there in a minute. Okay? So he comes. He picks me up. And as we're riding, let, 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 me, let me let this play with you for just a minute. <laughs> This, is, this was my head deacon at the time. He's driving, he says, Pastor, I have a question for you. And I thought the question was going to be, is this okay to do? In other words, is this the ox in the ditch that Jesus was talking about? And guess what he said? He said, you know what, Pastor? He says, I have a little bit of a problem. And I thought, oh no, he's gonna tell me he has problem doing the work. It's okay. And I actually told him, I said, just give me your truck, I'm good, okay? If you'll let your truck uh, help me, then, then, then I'll do that. I, I don't want you to do anything you don't, you're not moved to do. And he says this, he goes, he said, Isaiah says for us to refrain from our pleasure on the Sabbath. He said, my pleasure is helping people. So am I violating the Sabbath now by doing my pleasure? <laughs> You talk about a curveball. That was him. That was him. It wasn't until prayer meeting this year 
that it actually hit me. We always use the ox in the ditch as the standard, right? As long as we can prove that this is an ox in the ditch, then we'll let people, <laughs> we'll allow people, you know, to do some work on the Sabbath, right? But do we ever read that verse in Luke? By the way, this was after the man with dropsy, okay? That he healed them because they were watching. And he said to them, if any one of you has a what? A child. Or what? An ox. And has fallen into a well. Do you not immediately what? Pull it out on the Sabbath day? And what was Jesus saying here? See, we used to, I, I used to, I, I sat in, I've, I've sat in several Sabbath schools where we define what the ox is. Well, the ox is their way of making a living. It's just like back in the millstone thing. So you can't have him leave the ox in there. He'll be leaving his way of making a living. By the way, when sun goes down, he's got to go back to work. You can't leave the ox there. What if the ox dies? And what was Jesus saying? Jesus saying is that this is a person and it should mean more to you than an ox. And he brings it up to them because he knows that their understanding of leaving the Sabbath commandment on the page and all it says is what we're not allowed to do, they've never ever considered that a person means more than an ox. When she asked me, isn't this the ox in the ditch? What I should have said was, you're not an ox. You're our daughter. And you bet we're going to pull you out of the well. But somewhere along the line, that's not what we taught her. She'd been worshiping with us for years. And we hadn't taken her beyond our Bible belief. Because we didn't love her. Here's a call for the endurance of the saints. Those who what? Those who keep the commandments of God and hold fast to the faith of Jesus. That verse right there is, is our, our end time call, our end time plea that we keep the fourth commandment. Not, not just, you know, not nine commandments and one suggestion, we keep the fourth commandment. But we have to remember that in the end time, what we learn is that that's not what that says. That, that's not, keeping the commandments of God means we love God and we love our neighbor as ourselves. And the only way we can do that is to go beyond our Bible belief. Go beyond our Bible belief. Which, by the way, the law can't touch. Jesus loves. He fulfills the law by loving people with the love of God, by healing them on the Sabbath, by not allowing them to suffer one minute more, even though the law on paper would allow you to. Which, by the way, if the law and paper allowed them to, why haven't they taken care of this in less than 38 years? It's because they care more about their Bible belief than loving their neighbor as their self. That's what he said to the seven churches who are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. 
all seven churches, even Laodicea, even Laodicea, us living in the end who are rich and have need of nothing because we've got truth. We're Bible believers. Even us, the last church to try to live without the love of God. He died for our sins too. And frees us from them. And frees us from our mere Bible belief and calls us into a saving belief and faith in the word of God, incarnate in Jesus Christ. The law can't touch that. The law can't even come close to touching that. You agree? The Bible doesn't come close to touching that on paper. The Bible in the flesh, Name him. He's wonderful. He's awesome. He's he's Jesus. And I'm thankful to be reminded of that today. So continue to believe in the Bible. Okay? But you got to take it off the page. Look at the possibilities of what it means to love as the fulfillment of the law. Be Bible-believing, but be Christ-centered. I I, I saw a a quote the other day and said, maybe, just maybe, and I'm not willing, you know, I'm not gonna push you beyond this, all right? Maybe I shouldn't even say it. Don't strive to be a Bible-believer. Strive to be Christ-like. That's our goal. We're not a Bible-believing church. We're a Christ-like church. And that's how we get beyond what I was talking about. So did you put your stones down? No longer going to stone me for telling you that don't be merely a Bible believer? I told you I was just going to have you change your definition of what a Bible believer is. Are you still a Bible believer? Okay, there we go. All right. I'm, again, happy that John reminds us of that today.